Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. You never say your last name anymore. You just say Matt these days. I'm Matt Bird. Bird is my last name. It's a wonderful last name. So yeah, I know. Is... I, you should flaunt it more. I mean, last episode, you just said, I'm Matt. And I said, I'm James Kennedy after it. And I felt kind of like I was like overdoing it. But, uh... Ooh, la-di-da, Mr. Kennedy. I guess you brag <laughs> about your last name. So this is a true story. My wife and I overlapped for one year of college, but never really met. But she had a crush on me from afar. Mm. And I never knew who she was and never found out who she was. And then years later, I was living in Minneapolis. She got an invite to come move to Minneapolis to come hang out with all the people from our college who were hanging out there. And then she said, you know, Matt Bird lives there. And then she said to her friend at the time, she was living out in Portland, Oregon. She said to her friend, you know, if I moved to Minneapolis and married Matt Bird, my name would be Betsy Bird. <laughs> Origin story. <laughs> and then she moved out to Minneapolis and then married me. And she became Betsy Bird, and that name is the source of all her fame and fortune today. So I'm... I have not given my wife very much in this world, but I did give her one thing. I gave her a name that she loves. Yeah, it, it is a perfect name for a children's librarian. It's almost too good to be true. It is. Speaking of Betsy, we haven't really uh, pumped up her book enough on this show. Your no, we wife haven't. has a new book out for young readers called Long Road to the Circus. I read it. I loved it. It's great. You know, I mean, she's done, a, she's done at this point a couple of picture books. She's done a couple of nonfiction books. This is her first chapter book, heavily illustrated chapter book, illustrated by David Small. And it's about a girl who runs off to basically join the circus, a sort of former circus performer who now runs her own sort of ranch in small town Michigan. And she teaches the girl to ride ostriches. So it's an ostrich writing book, which means it has something in common with your novel, James, The Order of Oddfish, which That's also true. had ostrich writing in it. Yeah, an ostrich writing girl, no less. Um, it's a Michigan thing. Uh, and But hers is kind of based on a real life thing from her hometown. Like there was a woman that who is a character in her book, like Madame Marantet or something, who is like the ostrich writing madam. And the illustrator, David Small, lives in this woman's house now so it's almost overdetermined that this book would be written yes and uh that she had this vision she was like i know that the great children's book illustrator david small lives in the house that was formerly owned by madame Morantat, and i am gonna write a novel and get him to illustrate it and showing off both of our cultural heritage she is also from central michigan and they did it. And the book was, has been wildly successful. Everybody loves it. And she has had, you guys, your books came out right around the same time. Your books came out on the same yes. week. My new book, The Secrets of Character, was also supposed to come out that week, but it got delayed. So yeah. my book is coming out in April. We'll do lots of promotion of that book when it's time. I can assure you of that. But in the meantime, we are promoting James's book and my wife, Betsy Bird's book, Long Road to the Circus. My book called Dare to Know. We didn't say the name of it. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I like to be petty right off at the top. Oh, and another thing that's going on is that it's once again time for the 92nd Newberry Film Festival that I run. Uh, it's an annual film contest which kid filmmakers create short movies that tell the stories of Newberry winning books in about 90 seconds. Um, the movies are due on January 14th 
adult help is totally okay. And you can find out more at uh, www.90secondnewberry.com. It's 90newberry with one R.com. It's a terrible URL. I always have to explain it whenever I say it. My wife has a very complex email address which uses words for numbers and numbers for words. And she has regretted it many times over the years. But she is the one who helped me start this film festival when she was a children's librarian at the New York Public Library. And, um, and she's, and because of her help, like I've been able to keep this going for 11 years. Um, and, uh, for those of you who are interested in it, um, one of the things I like to see is like kids make movies that tell the stories in like some weird different way. So like do Charlotte's web, but do it in the style of a horror movie or do, um, I don't know, holes, but do it in Lego stop motion. And you can see a lot of examples of, uh, great versions of these movies at 90secondnewberry.com and I will not explain that URL again. So the, what are we what are we here to talk about today? So I thought I'd talk about one of my biggest things that I talk about that I'm known for. It is in my first book, it is in my second book. It is all over the blog and that is sort of the three aspects of voice. I would say are metaphor family, default personality trait and default argument tactic. And I developed these ideas in these blog posts from 2011, almost exactly 10 years ago. And then they just kept growing and metastasizing, and then I've revisited them in various posts over the years. One reason I wanted to do this tonight is to bring attention to something I've been doing on the blog, where I've been updating and expanding the Ultimate Story Checklist, bringing it more into line with the first book, and also expanding each post with some of the later posts I wrote about each subject, and then having at the end a sort of collection of all of the ultimate story checklists I've done and how they answered that question. And right now I'm working my way through the character chapter and I thought I would focus on three of the posts that I just reposted. And I thought it might be fun to talk about them. And you've never really given me any pushback on these, but I suspect you've got you've got some things to say today. Matt, I am here to support you and make you look good 100%. Well, thank you, James. I'm glad to hear that. So, I mean, the reason the reason why, James, I would think you might have some pushback on this episode is because I would, just knowing you, I would be afraid you would say this is too mechanical. This is a very sort of workmanlike way to break down a character's voice into three elements. Now, I remember once I was showing you, many years ago, I was reading Scott McCloud's book on making comics, and he had figured out how to do facial expressions in comics, and he had broken down he had created like six basic facial expressions and then showed how you can mix and match them to create like 78 different facial expressions. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, James, isn't this amazing, this chart? And you said you had this visceral, violent, negative reaction where you were like, no, that's the most disgusting, horrifying thing I've ever seen. And don't show me that. Don't make me look at that anymore. I don't want to see that. I'm listening to a podcast right now called Parks and Recollection because I am watching all of Parks and Rec with my daughters right now. And uh, they're talking about how they had these ideas for who the characters would be. And that was season one. And season one sucked. Yeah. Um, and then season two came along. and But they realized that they should start writing towards the actors that were playing them. So the, uh, Chris Pratt's character was supposed to be like this unlovable jerk. But Chris Pratt is such a charming person that 
it was uh, like they they realized that they should play to the strengths of that. Tom Haverford, they basically started, you know, building it around Aziz Ansari. Uh, Leslie Nope was a very underfoot character in the season one, like always kind of doing humiliating things and getting made an ass of. But Amy Poehler is a very high status person. And once they started making her competent, once they started make you know, putting wood building, which is something that Nick Offerman actually does into Ron Swanson's thing. Once they started making uh, Tom Haverford into as much of a hustler and somebody who cares about fashion and rap as in Z's Ansari, then it started becoming coming alive and becoming good. You, these things don't come from a chart. They come yeah. from real life. They come from watching people and going off of that. And they don't come from some kind of math that you do ahead of time alone in a room. Well, obviously, yeah. I mean, it's very, very tricky because ideally you're not going to be doing any of this work. You're going to be having, you know, a character is just going to speak to you and it is going to be a fully fleshed out, wonderful, alive character. And you're not going to have to think about where their voice is coming from. That doesn't As, happen ever. Oh, really? That that never That's never happened to you? No. And I distrust somebody who says, ah, I just sat back and I let the character speak to me. There's always an amount of work and craft involved. Yeah. But it, but it also, it, there's no such thing as pure creativity. There's no such thing as like you're just plugging yourself into the infinite and it speaks through you. You basically, you're a cauldron of every person you've met, every movie you've watched, every TV show you've seen, every book that you've read. And that all goes into the cauldron and something kind of grips the edge of the cauldron and pokes its head out and screams at you. And that's your creativity. And, but it comes out of the remix of everything that you've seen, both in your life and in art. The, the idea of like this kind of purity of an essence speaking to you. I don't think anybody who is a practicing artist w- would say that's true. That That's like one ridiculous extreme. The other ridiculous extreme is that, oh, we can do this geometrically. There was one time when a character really spoke to me. And that was, I had, I when I wrote my play about William Henry Ireland, the Shakespeare forger, I had not been able to, create the character's voice. I had not been able to hear the character's voice. The character had not come alive for me. And I decided not to write it. I'd put it aside. And then one day the character just came to me. It's sort of this magical thing you hear about actually happened to me. And the opening monologue of the play just popped into my head fully formed. And then I was able to write the thing lightning fast. I was able to just burn through that play because I suddenly knew who this guy was. He was talking to me and I knew his voice allowed that play to exist because his voice was, I'm like, oh, okay. If he has that perspective on his life, then we will care about him. And if he had not had that perspective on his life, if he had taken this whole thing more seriously, or if he had taken the whole thing more flippantly, then we would not have cared. But he had, he came to me with just the right amount of, bitterness and amusement about his follies. And I was like, oh, that's a play I want to see. And that's a play I can write because I can hear his voice now. So it does. So, wait, wait, hold on. But what, did it just come as a bolt from the blue or what? what like, and it, it's absolutely no context. Or was there something in your own personality that was kind of speaking or people that you had met or something you had seen that kind of bubbled up? I, I, I just distrust the idea that some ineffable essence steps without context out of the ether and speaks. Well, and let me also add that William Henry Ireland had written three memoirs. So I wasn't creating a voice from scratch saying like, okay, who am I basing this on? Like I'm basing William Henry Ireland on William Henry Ireland. But 
none of them had the right tone. He was a liar. He was self-serving. And I couldn't really hear a voice that would make for a compelling play until suddenly this voice came to me. But I had done a tremendous amount of research. You know, I had sort of done all the research I needed to do for this play, but then the voice had not been, had not come to me in a compelling way. And so I had said, even after doing all this research, I'd set everything aside. And then suddenly it came to me. And that was the only time it's really happened. I usually build my voices more. I would usually not just go like, I'm walking away from this because I can't hear this guy. And then suddenly I can hear him and suddenly I can write it. You know, that's a very, <laughs> you, that's a very privileged position to be able to go like, you know, like, no, I'm only going to write once, once the character speaks to me. Usually you've got to write before that, you know, you're a working writer, you've got to go ahead and be able to, I've talked before on the blog and maybe in the books about how a working writer is not a prospector. He is not someone who is panning for gold and seeing if he can find a nugget that emerges from his consciousness. A, a working writer is an alchemist who can create gold from scratch, can create gold from lead. Right. And I, mean, I think the only problem with that is that you're just talking about the alchemist working alone. And I'm saying the alchemist makes the gold out of all the people that they've met and all the books that are sitting in their alchemist's lair. True. Um, yeah, like I, 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 like I, I think of people in terms of like relationships and where they sit in a network and how it all affects them, and not just like some solitary essence that just strides forth. Well, one of the things I talk about in terms of creating the voice of a character is I talk about in my book. I talk about Danny McBride, who created Eastbound and Down, how he was on the Mark Marin show and talking about his history. And he talked about all these terrible scripts he'd written and none of, and they all had these very fake artificial characters. You know, the Draven was half dragon, half Raven and uh, all of these terrible shows he had created. And then he one day was like, well, what sort of people do I know for my life? And he's like, well, I know small town, Southern Taekwondo instructors, these old white dude Taekwondo instructors who work out of mini malls. And that's something I haven't seen on screen. That's an inherently funny archetype that has been done to death. And I could do that. But then he was like, yeah, but who really cares? Who's going to like these characters? And then he combined these real people he knew with a comic persona because he was watching a lot of The Office, the UK version of The Office on DVD. And he was like, if I combine Ricky Gervais's comic persona with these Taekwondo instructors, then that's a movie. Yeah, it was a movie. And he wrote this movie, The Foot Fritz Way, which got him a lot of attention. And that is one way to create a voice is to go like, okay, here is here is a fictional persona and here is a real life persona. And if I mix them, what can I create? But I think the way that you're saying is like you're, you're talking about some kind of intentional process. And for him, it was like, I have this. And then he happened to be sitting there one day and then he was electrified by something that he saw. It wasn't like that he by force of will or by calculation, he went out and figured out, oh, I have this one thing from my real life. I see this one thing in pop culture. I'm going to combine them. It was that I'm looking for something. I'm looking for something. And then he was hit. He was struck by things coming into him. Okay. So, but I have not actually gotten to the point of this episode yet. So then I talk about how that's one way to create a voice. That's sort of a shortcut way to create a voice. But then I talk about, okay, let's actually do the work and talk about the first part of this is metaphor family. I wrote a bunch of blog posts and then cut and pasted them all to create a book. And then I massively rewrote them. And so my first book is about 50% stuff that was originally on the blog and 50% new stuff I wrote. And I really prefer the version 
the thing I wrote about metaphor family in the book than what I wrote in the blog, because I bring it around to a very unlikely topic. I talk about Dan Rather, and I talk about how the problem, one of the problems with character is this idea of the plot scene and the character scene. I have my plot scenes where my characters are just running and jumping and shooting and doing it and reacting to things in sort of a standard, typical way. Get out of there! get out of there the standard saying and doing the standard typical things you would expect characters to do while running jumping and shooting but then i want to get to know the character so then i'll have everything quiet way down and then suddenly the character sits down with another character and talks about about my dog (laughs) talks about that i had when i was seven talks about their background talks about oh let me tell you my backstory and unpack my baggage for you and then that's the that's the character scene where then you reveal their character. And this is a terrible way to write. You should have no pot scenes, no character scenes. Every scene should be a pot scene and a character scene. But I talk about how one of the ways to do this is to have all of their language be informed by one metaphor family, I call it. All of their language be informed by either where they come from or what their role is in life or what their job is. And... I talked about one example of... I said, or these are the three places where that are fertile areas where it could come from. You could imagine other places it could come from. Yes, yes. And there have been. Sometimes I have talked about... I've discovered other things in the years as I've talked about this in the blog. I've talked about how sometimes you have a counterintuitive metaphor family. Sticking with the UK office, Gareth has a military metaphor family, even though he's never been in the military. And he works in a paper company. But he is just obsessed with the military and sees himself as a military man, even though he just works in a paper company. And that is a, you know, that's an out of nowhere metaphor family, and those can work too. But so I talk about one example of showing your character in a way where instead of pausing to show your character, you're showing your character more as things get more exciting is Dan Rather during the 2000 election night. During election night in the year 2000, Dan Rather was sort of accidentally showing more and more his background in rural Texas over the course of the night, not because things were slowing down and he was able to talk about his character, but because things were speeding up. And so he's, <laughs> I have this collection of things he said over the course of the night. He says, it's too early to say he has the whip hand or don't bet the trailer money yet, or this race is as tight as the rusted lug nuts of a 55 Ford, or you talk about a ding dong knockdown get up race, or the presidential race is still hotter than a Laredo parking lot. And or, like, or if a frog had side pockets, he'd carry a handgun. <laughs> or it's about as complicated as a wiring diagram to some dynamo. Or this <laughs> are, these, you, yeah, are yeah. these real? Yeah, yeah. I went and I did research. Um, <laughs> this will show you how tight it is. It's spandex tight. Uh, um, <laughs> you, uh, these are all quotes from that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I, there's a website that collected them all. And then George W. Bush ended up taking down Dan Rather. How ironic. Well, These returns uh, are running like a squirrel in a cage. <laughs> it was a hell of a night. I watched it, man. I watched it live. Um, so I talk about... I think so you I, would likelier see a hippopotamus run through this room than see George Bush appoint Ralph Nader to the cabinet. <laughs> all right. I think we've heard enough. We've lived I, I, by the crystal ball. We're eating so much broken glass. We're in critical condition. I thought I was already pushing things by reading five of them. Now you have read seven more. I think we can <laughs> move on. Okay, so I talk about 30 Rock, and I talk about how like Jack's metaphor family is based on his employment. He speaks corporate ease, albeit the bizarre and vaguely new-agey language of modern management techniques. 
And because he's the only person who is a boss on the show. So he is, well, I guess that's not true. Liz is boss, but he's the only person who's a corporate person on the show. I agree with you. And that's very insightful that it is corporate ease that's inflected by new age jargon. But it's also like Boston Irish and it's also rich out of sight. Yes, I, that's the other thing. He has sort of a secondary metaphor family, which is Boston Irish. And he is, I forget what his names for his fists are. Sandra Day O'Connor, I think is one of his fists. And I forget what the other one is. But then I talk about how the others on the show are all creative types and they can't all talk alike. So they all have non-job-based sources for their metaphor families. Tracy's and Kenneth's reflect each character's home region, the inner city and rural Georgia, respectively. And I say even Jack occasionally lapses into his fallback persona, Boston Catholic. Liz, on the other hand, has a metaphor family drawn from her psychology. She employs the language of adolescence when she says, I want to go to there, or blurg, a state that she is always trying and failing to move beyond. Yeah, so she's also very family. Midwestern in a way. Yes. Like, she, she, she's not of New York. Yes, so that is metaphor family. Okay, so... Well, well, let me ask you this. What's your metaphor family? That is an excellent question. That is an excellent question. No one's ever asked me that. I have such a, I am such a mutt. I use some Arkansas expressions I got from my dad. My dad's from. Like what? A combination between tipping something over and dumping something over is tumping something over. Okay. Or I, I the other day said to Betsy, like, oh yeah, you know, I just rigged it together out of spit and bailing wire. Uh-huh. And she was like, what on earth did you just say? And I said, what? I've rigged it together out of spit and bailing wire. What? And she's like, who the fuck are you? What the hell is that? What do you call that expression? And I'm like, oh, I guess that's an Arkansas expression. And then my mom is New York Irish Catholic, and I will use those expressions. She will say, never leave the kitchen with one hand long as dether. With one hand what? With one hand long as dether. The other? As in the other, shortened to dether. So meaning wow. you sh- meaning that when you leave the table, you should always be clearing something off the table. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And you should always have your hands not as long as each other because you're carrying different things in each hand. So don't leave the table with one hand long as the other. So I've got all sorts of bizarre Irish Catholic phrases that I get from her. And then I don't, re- you know, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I will very occasionally use Atlanta, Georgia expressions i will use well basically just georgia expressions and then but i've just i've been so all over the place and god knows i've never held down a real job so i have i mean that's an excellent question like if this is not something that applies to real life then what are we even talking about that's one reason why i was so glad to find the dan rather examples for the book mm-hmm. well we, we can't we, we can't i uh often analyze ourselves so well as others what's my metaphor family what is your metaphor family? I would say you definitely have some Irish Catholic in you. And you have said things that made me think, oh, he's an Irish Catholic. But I would say to a certain extent, the fact that you were a philosophy major, correct? Yes. Well, physics and philosophy double major. But yeah. Yes. I would say that you have a bit of a philosophy metaphor family. And you will say things odd things that I'm like, oh, okay, right. He was a philosophy major or, you know, specifically a philosophy major at Notre Dame University um, <laughs> where you had this sort of odd theology inflected philosophy that would th- come up. I think I often say pure nonsense. 
Uh, I think I think, I think I, I will say like, what's the ding dang doodle on that or, or or something like that like almost like a uh, Ned Flanders isms like or if I can't think of a word I will say a nonsense word yes um, which and, is I think to a certain extent your metaphor family is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, that, that's probably pretty good yeah <laughs> uh, um, yeah you know, instead of saying what's the story you'll say what's the dorpa dupe or things yeah yeah. <laughs> This is good. This is good to figure out about our, ourselves. So what do you did you think that was a gotcha when you asked me what my metaphor family was? Were you trying to say, is no. this even real? No, no, I was. I mean, number one, we can't analyze ourselves insofar as it's a gotcha. It's like I knew I was giving you a uh, a question that would be hard for you to answer. Um, but no, I was not trying to disrupt or disprove your point. I thought it would be interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think that you have a like a, a, a fussy kind of detailed way of talking about things. Um, I think that, I mean, if that's a metaphor family, uh, um, I think, I think that you also, I mean, or I don't know if this, or this is, a, this might shade a default personality. You don't care who you enrage when you say what you think the truth is, I yeah. think is, is one of your default personality traits. I, I guess we're shading in a default personality trait, right? Yes, now. that would definitely be my default personality trait. Um, so yeah, so let's go and talk about default personality trait. So when you have a character, their emotional state is going to be changing. Characters are in flux. Things about them are changing. And they have a philosophy that usually goes through a big change. So over the course of your story, your character will go through one major shift in philosophy. They'll go through several fluctuations in their emotional state, one major change in their philosophy. But this whole time, they will have a default personality trait that will never change. And I talk about in my new book about how true this is of Marvel movies and how Tony Stark completely transforms his philosophy. His original philosophy is... The way to ensure peace is to carry a bigger stick than the other guy. And then by the end of the movie, his philosophy is, I'm not going to let anybody use my weapons no matter what. And it's like, okay, well, that is a complete philosophy shift. But he's still the same cocky jerk he always was. He's just cocky jerk for good, and he was a cocky jerk for evil before. And I talk about how even in characters where they where they did undergo a huge change to their default personality trait in the comics. Like Doctor Strange in the comics was a cocky jerk. And then after he found Enlightenment in Tibet, he became a wise philosophical spiritual character. But in the movies, they're like, no, this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Everybody sticks to their default personality trait. Doctor Strange, just like Iron Man before him, will remain a cocky asshole even as he achieves Enlightenment in Tibet. And or Nepal in the movies because they have to pretend that Tibet doesn't exist so that they can sell the movies in China. So that is default personality trait. And this is the thing about your character that does not change. Well, okay, here's my contribution to that idea, which I think I've said a version of before on this podcast, which is that characters, I agree, have their default personality trait, but they have it in relation to whatever character they happen to be interacting with. Yeah. Like if we go back to Leslie Nope, Leslie Nope always acts consistently towards Ann Perkins, and she acts consistently towards Ron Swanson, but she doesn't act the same way towards both of them, right? Right. Like so, it's relational. Like, um, like, uh, uh like for instance, every t- like often, like one of the constant things she does with Ann is she's like, "Oh, Ann, you beautiful rule-breaking moth," or "Oh, Ann, you beautiful tropical fish." Oh, and you're a beautiful, talented, brilliant, powerful muskox. And you poetic, noble land mermaid. 
Oh, Anne, you beautiful, naive, sophisticated newborn baby. Like, she would never say that to Ron, you know? That's a right. thing that she says to Anne. And it you couldn't derive those Anne-isms from the way that she talks to Ron, which is kind of like, she's, which is harder to pin down. They kind of have, oddly, uh, uh, Leslie and Ron have a deeper relationship, in my opinion, than Anne and Leslie. You know, mm-hmm. because Anne and Leslie, they just support each other. But like uh, Ron and Leslie change each other. And um, the uh, they, they're, they're, I, I guess there's a kind of a, a wary appreciation of him that that comes when she speaks to him. But but you, but you see this with everyone, the way that Leslie speaks to, you know, Chris Traeger is going to be different how she speaks to Andy Dwyer. I, I think that we do have these default personality traits, but we have them in relationship to each other. You can't imagine Luke Skywalker being as sulky as he is to uncle Owen, as he is to Obi-Wan. You right. Know? That's true. Uh, um, and so I think this different, just as in life, we find that different people bring out different parts of us. I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, and this is something that is not uh, very new to human nature, but like when you go home, and you hang out with your parents, you become your worst 18 year old self. Right. Right. Whereas if you're hanging out with, you know, some person that you just met and they haven't heard any of your tiresome anecdotes and, and, and you are I kind of like still fresh to them, you are kind of sometimes the most scintillating and brilliant person in the world. Now, we asked each other, what is your metaphor, family? What is your default personality trait? What is my default personality trait? Um, I mean, I think you were saying before honest. I think honest may be my default personality trait. I think an honest contrarian is your personality trait. Yeah. Um, I, I think that you, in a perverse way, like nothing better than to rub everyone the wrong way saying something that you think is true. Yeah, that's true. That is my favorite thing. That's always been my favorite thing. Um, well, I mean, and that sort of became my book. My book became something where it's like, oh, you know, even in my new book, I'm like, did you know that one of your first jobs as a writer is to be repetitive? Wait, what? Be repetitive? <laughs> that sounds wrong. Well, I'll tell you it's right. And I like to put everything in a way where it sounds as counterintuitive as possible. I do that less in my second book than I did in my first book. My first book, I say right at the beginning, this book will be counterintuitive. And you know, it's less of a thesis statement in my second book. But yeah, no, I think that that is a big part of me. Now, are you going to ask me your default personality trait? Yeah. Hmm. Um, maybe aggressive? Maybe. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those things that is different from person to person. I'm aggressive with you. Yes. I will always come out swinging against you, but never against, say, my daughter. This is why yeah. these things are relational. You don't think you're not aggressive at all with your kids, obviously not in a bad way, but you're not like aggressive in a good way with your kids. No, no. In fact, I'm the opposite. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way with my kids. I am with you. I think. (laughs) I mean, I, I mean, I I think I, the two people I'm aggressive with most of my life are you and my mother. That's funny. I'd say I tend to treat most people the same way. I mean, it's funny what you're saying about some characters treating people differently. You know, when I was, I started with the examples of like Iron Man and Doctor Strange, and I know you're not a big fan of Marvel movies. Nope. I would say like Iron Man treats everybody the same. I would say Iron Man doesn't, doesn't have some characters he treats differently from other characters. He is, he has a very strong default personality. Doesn't he, doesn't he treat Gwyneth Paltrow differently than other people? 
I guess he does. He's still a cocky asshole to her, but he tries to be different around her and fails. Well, and... maybe this is why he's not such a great character. I mean, I don't, I don't find Marvel movies interesting at all. So, like, but like, like Indiana Jones, who we both agree is interesting, acts differently with Brody than he does with uh, Marion. He acts differently with Marcus than he does with Marion than he does with Sala. Like, it, it, it is it, that that is how we that is how we understand people is we see them interacting with different people and then we see their different sides. If we just say in a mechanical way. This person is a cocky asshole. Let's see how they're a cocky asshole to everyone. That's not interesting. It but I think that, weird... that is, I think it has to do with how flawed you are. I think that I am a very flawed person who tends to forget that I can't treat everybody the same way and tell the same stories to everybody and, you know, and act in the same way to everybody. And I certainly forget all the time that I can't act with my kids the way I act around you. I, I think I may be Tony Stark. I think I may be validating the oh existence of the Tony Starks in literature. And you may be you may be validating the existence of the Leslie Nopes in literature. <laughs> well I, I mean I, I definitely prefer uh Parks and Rec to any Marvel movie existing past p- present or future. You know, my mom, I've talked about how my mom was old school New York Irish Catholic and but also my mom was just extremely inappropriate. And both of my parents were extremely inappropriate. They both, I've talked before on this podcast about how, you know, my dad at one point said to me like, you know, Matt, the thing that makes me really proud is whenever you say fuck you to us, is whenever you say fuck you to your parents, it makes us so proud of you because it shows that we've raised you to, you know, be someone who can speak your mind and and be part of the world. And of course, I'm like, when I how said many- fuck you to my parents... I wanted my parents to be upset. I wanted to upset them by saying fuck you to them. And then they knew they were just infuriating me by telling me how much they loved it when I would say fuck you to them. How many tens of thousands of dollars did your uh, dad make for some therapist by saying that to you at the right age? Well, and so I went through my whole life saying fuck you to people and expecting them to thank me for it. Okay, that, that, that is your default personality trait. Yes. Thank God you didn't have to woo somebody and that somehow you like uh like by, by no by no skill of your own you're able to snag a dime like De- like Betsy by doing nothing and just existing and, and the, 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 she just like fell into your lap. I I I, I the, the luck, Matt, the luck. I know I'm a lucky man. But so then so but my mom also, you know, my mom was was famous for her dirty mouth, for her cussing. Uh-huh. And at one point, she joined an Episcopal ladies joke telling group. And <laughs> and this was the worst possible place she could have found herself in the entire world. And the very first, it was a public speaking group. But she said, they said, okay, let's start the first day telling jokes. And she told a very long joke, for which the punchline is. A duck for a fuck, a fuck for a duck, and fifteen bucks for a fucked up duck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love told, how you don't tell the joke. <laughs> no, it's it's a long joke, but you, all you need is the punchline. And the yeah. Episcopal ladies, and she was like genuinely shocked that the Episcopal ladies group was not happy to hear this joke. Wait, wait, the, the way that the, she told the joke up to that point was there no hint that it would turn into saying the word fuck a million times? Like, was no, like, well, no, that's the whole point of the joke. Reading. That's what makes it funny. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, <laughs> that's what makes it funny. But so then let's go and get to the third thing, which is default argument strategy. Now, this one was not originally part of it. And then I eventually realized, like, 
Okay, this is a big part of character, and this is my favorite of these three things, because this is, I feel like, a very big part of writing that is something that is very helpful for writing and is not something that you see a lot. Uh, It's not something that you see discussed a lot when people discuss writing, and that is what is a character's argument strategy? And every character, if they're well-written, has a certain methodology that they tend to use. They can do other things. You can have a character who is suddenly aggressive, who has never been aggressive before, but they have a default. They have the one they fall back on if they're not trying to do something else. And so I talked about community and I talked about how Jeff's default argument tactic is he traps you with evidence of your lies in a lawyerly manner. In this case, his argument strategy is based on his abandoned profession, the the profession that kicked him out. Or he makes an argument from cool, kind of being dismissive on on the basis of, are you cool or not? Yes. You, you know what I mean? Like, so I think it's, it's a dual tactic. It's lawyerly stuff. And it's also like, he's looking at his phone and he says something dismissive because it, like the, the conversation that other people are having is below him. Yes. And, uh, um, and then, so Abed, I talk about Abed as faux naive questions, noticing little details and psychological tells. So he'd be like, oh, really? Well, then this? Well, then this? And, you know, it seems like he is a guileless person who is asking genuinely naive questions, and then you realize they're sort of faux naive questions, and he's sort of leading you in a particular direction. Right. And- or, or it's also, he kind of points out that this situation that you're in is following the pattern of a different cultural product. Yes. Uh, so he says to Jeff in the pilot, he says, at first I thought you were like Bill Murray in his movies, but now I realize you're like Michael Douglas in his movies. Yeah, frankly, I think that that's a better explanation of who Abed is rather than saying faux naive questions. Like, I, I, I think what he does is that he relates everything to a particular cultural product and, and tries to see how this thing follows that pattern. It's how he do, does it with like the Halloween, the, the Christmas special uh, and many other things. I um, think that's, I like mine better. I think that he, you, you can that, think that, of instances that, that on the show. That, that, doesn't, of... that, that doesn't uh, like take into account, you just say, if it's faux naive questions, that doesn't take into account the fact that he's so kind of invested and encyclopedic knowledge of and deploys all the time his knowledge of pop culture. Just faux naive questions doesn't capture that. I, I'm not trying to capture that. I think you're talking more about his default. I think you're talking more about his default personality trait. I would say that, you know, it's good to, you know, his way, when you watch that show, his way of doing these faux naive questions, I think, is a great example of showing how people go about getting what they want more than I think it's it sort of represents a failure on this part when he results when he resorts to pop culture references and interpreting everything through his pop culture lens. I think that that is when he is not being an effective character. That is when he is you know failing as a person, which is his in some ways his big flaw. But on I the contrary, say... that's his superpower. Like the the whole like chicken episode, he's like thinking of the whole thing in terms of Goodfellas. Like that is the thing that actually makes him powerful. Yeah, it can. It can, but it can also, certainly in the claymation episode, it was a sign that he was feeling very damaged at that time. Yeah, and... but but he but in the end, everybody comes together to say Abed is right and Professor Duncan is wrong. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's 
he was a very complex character, but I just liked noticing. <laughs> in in conclusion, Abed is a land of contrasts. Yes, he certainly is. Okay, let's move on to Annie. Annie, on the other hand, asks genuinely naive questions. And she's like, wait, what? 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 Explain this to me? And she partic- she persistently interrogates until she gets to the truth. Troy uh, half-heartedly attempts to lay logic traps and trap you with your own words. And he'll be like, oh, but didn't you just say? And then the person is now running running rings around him before he even realizes what he's, what he's saying. And he sort of is uh, someone who is not as good as trapping people as he wants him to. I think Surely, also his, his thing is kind of connected to Abed. And, yeah. and like, like Troy, the, the original idea behind him is that he was like this jock. And then just like with Parks and Rec, they realized that like he he didn't belong with Pierce. He, he belonged with Abed, just looking at like the actor who is playing with him. And um, he uh, became this person who his default personality is saying, I'm up for whatever Abed is up for was kind of his thing. Yeah. But again, that's that's yeah, that's his personality trait. But in terms of his uh, his argument tactic, um, you know, he would he would he wasn't a very effective arguer. And but he would he had the sort of thing he would try to do. So surely she would do passive aggressive guilt tripping and Christian moralizing. And Britta would accuse you of hypocrisy, inconsistency or general lack of morality. Pierce was the one person who didn't strategize at all. He would just insult people. And he was this is why Pierce was sort of the closest thing the show had to a villain. He was someone who I think we really invest in somebody uh, talking about belief, care, and fest, we invest in someone a lot because of their default argument tactic. How watching them scheme to get what they want or use, especially if it's a way that speaks to their personality, is something that really makes us like a character. Yeah, I think Shirley is two things. It's like the Christian moralizing, but it's also when her voice goes down like this. You know, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 and she's like, I'm a badass. Don't mess with me. Like, I've been through shit that you can't even imagine, which is that we like we learn. We see hints of it, like at the episode in which they all go out to the bar on when Troy turns 21. And we see yeah. like there's all those pictures of her on the wall. Like they, they, there is a kind of like a or, or like when we realize that she's a person who played uh, foosball against Jeff when they were both kids in that one episode. Well, and sometimes, that? sometimes her, her pitch of her voice goes up and sometimes it goes down. So yeah. sometimes oh, that's like, so sweet. <laughs> you better not be messing with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so I talk about how. So there's dualities. I think one thing that we should, we should take into account with these things is that some people, they have dualities that are ironically related to each other of their like personality traits or argument tactics, even like, uh, like Shirley's is I am a sweet and moral Christian woman. And I am a person who has seen shit that you cannot possibly imagine. Uh, um, And, and I've been there and you haven't. And she can, and she can go back and forth between relying on one aspect of herself and relying on the other aspect of herself to get what she wants yeah and, I, I mean surely it's like a, like my one of my secret favorite aspects about community like I, you don't often see a christian portrayed on television in a just kind of uh not condescending light like i'm not i'm not carrying any water for christians god knows but like it, it was kind of like it, it was kind of i don't know refreshing that it it never talked down to her and that oh, no. she was able to hold her own in various ways. Oh yeah. No, I thought, I thought she was an amazing character. And yeah. So I talk about how 
Um, sometimes I say these, you know, their strategies tend to have some overlap with metaphor families or default personality traits. Jeff, Shirley, and Britta have strategies that relate to their backgrounds, a lawyer, an evangelical, and a hippie. Abed's is related to a psychology of Asperger's. Annie's Troy, Annie, Troy, and Pierce, on the other hand, use strategies that match up to their default personality traits, sweet, geeky, and arrogant, respectively. Yeah, yeah, but well. even, even with Britta, like, it's not so, just like with Shirley, it's not that she's a hippie. Because I don't think that does her character justice. She is an older person who is like wants to seem politically engaged, but doesn't have the bandwidth for it or or even like the intellectual capacity for it. She has a moral force for it, but not that. And then she like one of the things she likes to say is like, I lived in New York. Yeah. You know, and that that is that all these things are things that are not caught when you say well Britt is a hippie you know what i mean like right. in, in the same way you say well jeff's a lawyer so he would do this and i know that you're just trying to get through a point quickly but th- like um by trying to get through a point quickly you might be missing some things that are that that we should examine and actually make it a more interesting case than what you're saying yeah well i think that as with anything that is really well written and that was a show that was really well written Obviously, if you're going to squeeze six seasons in a movie out of characters, or in this case, six seasons in no movie, then the complications and complexities of these characters are just going to keep growing and mounting, and everything is going to keep growing and changing, and the characters are going to grow and change, and everything's going to become more and more complex. But I think that it's a good way to think what we're talking about here in this whole episode is to what degree, if the character does not speak to you, can you manufacture their voice? But and... here's, but that's the thing. When Dan Harmon was writing Community, he partially based Jeff Winger on his friend, uh, Jeff, the guy, uh, uh, who's the guy from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Jeff Davis. He based it on Jeff Davis, who was like a person who was his friend in the Channel 101 days and was his like co-host on his podcast, Harmon Town. And like kind of like a handsome guy who could talk oh this is the guy on the harman quest who wears the suit yeah yeah the guy in the suit just like uh you know sharp dressed just like uh jeff winger um and obviously he thinks that pierce is dan Harmon himself later on in life this (laughs) is who dan Harmon is afraid he's going to be you know and we can kind of go and like abed is a part of dan Harmon, but it's also based on dan Harmon had an actual friend named abed and if you go and listen to um, Justin Roiland's podcast, uh, Grandma's Virginity, uh, there's a couple episodes in which the real Abed is on, and t- telling all these crazy stories, and Dan Harmon is on too, and they're talking about it, and um, like when he went to jail and all these other things. But it's real Abed is actually only 10%, like the Abed on the show, but he started with a real Abed, and that kind of got him going, and he named the character after him. Um, and the Abed of, of community is completely different than this real life Abed, who is kind of more of a weird fuck up, but it is absolutely not rooted in your Scott McCloud 72 permutations of eyebrows, but it's more about like, I met this one person. Oh, I got, I got, I got to write about this guy. It, it, or there's this part about myself that I'm afraid I'm going to turn into, I'm going to put him in this guy, you know, and that if we're writing, if we're doing this, not for mathematicians who are going to look at stories later on and are going to say, ah, this is how stories work. 
if we're going to talk to writers about how to write stories, this is where it comes from. The guts come from these people that you know or things about yourself that you're proud of or that you're afraid of and that it's going to come out of that. And we can analyze it later, but the kind of the the undifferentiated muck of inspiration that it will arise of that we have no control over, that's where it actually comes from and not from a chart. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I mean, as with anything in my book, it's sort of a revision book and it's sort of like, okay, something isn't working here and something isn't working about my first draft and what is missing. And so so much of my book is based on going through and figuring out what is missing from your first draft and how to add it back in afterwards, which is never ideal. <laughs> it's trying to, especially with a character's voice, trying to go back, you know, the the worst note, when I was giving people notes, the worst note I hated to give people is you've got voice issues, especially in a novel, because basically if you've written a whole novel and you've got voice issues, you've got an uncompelling or even worse, unconvincing voice, then you're going to have to do a page one rewrite. If you don't have a strong voice, then especially for a first person novel, but even for a third person novel, then you're in big trouble. And any attempt you try to go back and go like, all right, let me more strongly characterize this character is going to be you're on shifting sand there. But on the other hand, every writer has to do it. As with anything else, it's like, on the one hand, if the job is too big, then you're screwed. But to a certain extent, every writer has to do this to a certain point. Every writer has to work on voice, on dare to know. To what degree did your character's voice appear fully formed in your first draft? And to what degree did you tweak it as you went? In Dare to Know, my the voice, which if if I have any kind of universal you know, praise about this book, it's about the voice. Maybe not about, you know, the plot or or like how it ends up or how likable the character is, but everybody says it's a strong voice. And it's it, it's my worst self ah and it's easy to do <laughs> let your freak flag fly no it's not my freak flag it's, it's like things that like i think no it's not even my worst self because there are things in it that are not even me but just like what if i took a photo negative of myself in a lot of it um, now there are certainly elements in there to know where it is stuff i'm like oh yeah this is the sort of thing james would say at parties <laughs> when about like Bob Dylan or whatever yeah when he was driving me crazy like complaining about the Beatles or whatever yeah and I'd be like oh yeah this is I I did have that sense for dare to know of this is James that is most insufferable you know you uh-huh. know denouncing Pixar or the Beatles or Bob Dylan or just sort of being just sort of a derogatory Oh yeah, I, I love how you, you're you're like your absolute your absolute uh, trilogy, uh, your trinity of things that cannot be questioned. The things that you're an asshole if you question them are Bob Dylan, Pixar, and the Beatles. If you're against them, you're you're Omerta in Matt's book. I would say I would say take that last sentence and change the word match to America, and I think that you're onto something. God. I think um, just in general, just uh, let's just go back to every previous episode of the podcast and just replace the word Matt with America and every previous discussion we've had. Yeah, and yeah. I think we'll be fine. Well, I mean, you do a lot of really, really good voice work in Dare to Know. At one point, you had 
emailed me and you're like, Matt, what are other examples of books where maybe we don't like the hero, but that's why we like the book because we don't like the hero. And I sort of came up with some lame books for you to do because you were thinking about writing an article about other books like this. And I realized later, like the real book that I would compare this one to, to compare your character's voice to is Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky. And in terms of having an extremely depressed character, a sort of self-destructive character, but one that has a compelling voice. Well, thank you. I mean, notes for Underground and maybe fans' notes. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, the, like you, you just keep watch, watching him walk into one situation after another that he can't, he can't get right. Um, the, have you ever seen the Coen Brothers movie Inside Lewin Davis? Of course, yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah I, I, I love that because I, I don't think I'm the one who first said this. I think I read this in a review somewhere, but the, just the, the reviewer said, one of the things this movie shows is that you don't have to fuck up 100% of the time to be a fuck up. You only have to fuck up 10% of the time to completely fuck up your life. And I, I think, think that is a brilliant thing you just said. I think that is so brilliant because you're quoting me and I'm the person who said the <laughs> thing that you just said. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't try to pass it off as something that I said. <laughs> Not here, buddy. Not here, <laughs> uh, yes, you're quoting me. Yes, and that is totally true. I was originally said that talking about the movie The Wrestler, but it's also certainly true for Inside Lewin Davis. And, and so you can be kind of, you know, somewhat successful professionally or even somewhat successful in love, but you just, like, if there's that little flaw in you is going to come out and it's going to wreck things. And those things are going to snowball. And at a certain point in your life, when you come to and you're kind of looking back, and I think there's a point in Dare to Know that he kind of comes to this realization at his ex-girlfriend Julia's wedding. He says, when did I become such an asshole? And that is kind of the, you know, one of the, for me, like what the book has been working towards emotionally the whole time. Yeah. And I think that's also true of fans notes and notes from underground to a certain extent. It's about realizing that you're the asshole, which is, you know, and I think all three of these books have, have autobiographical elements. And certainly a fan's notes is extremely autobiographical. And, you know, it's all about realizing at the end that I am, I am born to be a fan. I'm not born to be a creator. You know, this great irony that he writes this book about realizing he's not going to write the great American novel and then turn it into one of the great American novels. But and I think there's certainly autobiographical moments of Notes from Underground. And uh, you have just said there are some autobiographical elements of Dare to Know. But you're not anywhere near as much of an asshole as your character. I think it's safe to say. Thank you. Um, it, it, <laughs> Did you have to work on the voice for that character at all? Were there places where the voice fluctuated and you had to realign it, add, or you had to get him back on track? Or Yes, you know, yes. there's always a matter of craft. And, mm-hmm. and I, I had to make somebody who is smarter than me right? Uh, because I was, I'm not a physicist. I studied physics, but I never did it. And so I had to modulate that. I, I was never a salesman in the way that he was. And so I had to figure that out. I've never been a big philanderer, you know, like, but he was. So I had to figure that out. I've always um, considered you to be a very minor philanderer. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I see. You're, you're reading that as though I was trying to do a little cheat to, to kind of be like, oh, I was like, oh, I can't say I've never cheated on my wife. I have to say minor philandering. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Um, so, but no, the uh, I think that the broader lesson we have to take from this is that you have to go as a writer straight into 
and maybe uncomfortably into your own insecurities and fears and grab that live wire. Uh, and that is where your characters are. And that's where they, if people say, oh, I started writing something, but then I kind of petered out after the first act. It's because you didn't grab that live wire of what makes you afraid or what makes you excited or what makes you you or what you're seeing with the people around you. You're just doing geometry. You're doing those eyebrows on a Scott McCloud graph again. And you need to like you need to do what they were doing on Parks and Rec and say, who are the people who are around me and what can I do with them? As a writer, obviously you can you don't have a cast you have to work with. Unfortunately, you know, because they were able to pivot off of, oh, Aziz Ansari brings all this great stuff to the role. We can do this. Uh, Chris Pratt. Oh, I didn't know he could be so charming and do all this physical comedy. We could do that. You just have. But when you write a novel like Dare to Know, you can't do that. You can't. You can't. But but you but you can trust yourself and not trust the graph. I mean, this is what Star Wars is all about for crying out loud. You have to go turn off the your, computer. You have to turn off the computer. And Matt, you are the computer. But I, I, but I think this kind of goes back to what we were saying before is that you, you can't re, you know, rely on the Scott McCloud graph. You have to give up something of yourself. You have to sacrifice it on the altar for your thing to have any power, for your, well, yes. for your art to have any power. Yeah, I mean, and there were clearly elements of this book where I'm like, that is real. That's got to be real. That's so real. You know, and obviously when I read a book, I try to just step into the book, but I'm also a writing guru and I'm always analyzing. I'm always outside the book analyzing as a writing guru. And definitely one of the things in the book, I'm like, okay, that feels so real. I assume this is for real life, but maybe he just made it up, in which case that's even more impressive. It's the fact that he always buys her a lottery ticket. That's uh, made up. Is that just totally made up? You don't know anybody who would always buy their girlfriend a lottery ticket? No, I don't. The, 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 he buys her a lottery ticket and cigarettes every time. I mean, yes. I, I have often gone out and almost exclusively with women who smoke. Yes. Uh, when, when, I mean, Heather, when I first met her, she was a heavy smoker. Um, really? And, yeah. And, um, but yeah, oh, ex- except for uh, like one huge exception. Um, most of the people I've gone out with have smoked. Really? I can't imagine Heather is a smoker. Yeah. She quit She quit entirely at some point, I take it. When I first met her, her tongue was pierced. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All my rowdy friends have settled down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is funny. Okay, yeah, no, I I first made out with a girl who smoked like a chimney, and uh, can uh, and uh, certainly that was that is a memorable sensation. Um, <laughs> making out with a, a girl who's uh, with uh, with a mouthful of cigarette smoke. Um, yes, well, so that's so funny because you know of all the things in that book, that was the thing that was like, okay, this has got to be real. That's got to be a real thing. And it's it's such a perfect thing for the book because it's a reversible object. It is an object where it means a certain thing to them and then it comes to mean something different to them. And then ultimately he goes to see her once she is very rich and living in San Francisco and he is you know down and out. And he figures like, oh, if I'm going to go see her and her new husband and her kids, I should stop off and buy 
some cigarettes and a lottery ticket for her. <laughs> and then he's like, realizes very quickly, like, okay, this is really stupid. I should not have brought this. Obviously, she doesn't need a lottery ticket. She won the lottery. She married a rich guy and she made quite a bit of money herself. And then finally, like later on in the evening when he's alone with her, he sort of pitifully hands it to her. <laughs> and it is, and it is an abject moment. And it is like, oh, I read that. I'm like going, this feels so real, but it was not real. So how not did real. you? Well, hold on. especially since she uh, um, doesn't smoke anymore. Yes. And then so she it, does. It shows smoke. How, yeah. It shows how little he knows her now. Yes. Um, and um, also, and then he, but then, but it, then it re-reverses because then she gamely tries to smoke it. Yes. And I love that she has to go in the kitchen and get one of those little stick lighters you use to light your fireplace. And because uh, she doesn't have a lighter in the house. Yeah, that, that actually, I mean, maybe I, I mean, maybe I got this from you. I mean, I maybe I was thinking about reversible objects when I put that in. Maybe so. I because like I wrote all so. this after we started, you know, doing our thing. So, yes. you know, what? I, I'm going to say I got that from you, Matt. I didn't get it from real life. I got it from the, the, the gentle ministrations of one Matthew Quintavious Bird. Where did you learn this? Where'd you learn to do this? <laughs> the secrets of story.com. No, no, no. I'm, I'm setting you up. This is a pop cultural reference for our generation. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 okay. Uh, edit it in. I learned it from watching you, Matt. I learned it from watching you. Yeah, we, uh, so, are, but where did you come from? I mean, like, as, as you write, where do things like the cigarettes and the lottery ticket come from? Like, how did you look at this relationship between the two and say, okay, his way of expressing affection to her is lottery tickets and cigarettes. Like, where do you think you got that from? I think I had to physicalize it. And I, th I think I was thinking about, I, I got I, I think you're backing me into admitting that I was Scott McClouding. Scott McClouding. Yes, this is what I'm trying to do. <laughs> you were like, I need something to physicalize this relationship. I need a reversible object. I need to create something not based on life, not based on somebody I know. That is something that is going to feel really real, even though I don't have anything really real. I've tried to raid my friends. I've tried to raid myself. I haven't come up with a good object exchange. So I have to create something from scratch. I have to be an alchemist instead of a prospector here. Yeah, I think, I mean, I do remember with a, a girlfriend from college, I was trying to restart the relationship again. And I remember trying to, and I'm not going to mention what it is, trying to bring something to her that had meant something to us both before, like when we had like broken up the year before. And and like there there was a thing that, like a physical object, but I, like, and I remember thinking in terms of like, there is a ritual that I can enact that will get us back together. And it involves physical things. I mean, this might be my Catholic side coming out. <laughs> yes. Um, Communion wafer and turned <laughs> into the body of Jesus. So I, I do remember having, uh, having that instinct. And so it might've kind of like slightly grown from that, but like, okay. like I said before, like there, there is, you know, it comes from like writing comes from like the, your life. It comes from, drawing from other art that you've consumed and it comes from craft and um and you learn lessons and you apply them and that's what we're hopefully trying to do with this podcast so there is an element of your own life here you had brought a girlfriend an object that you used to mean something to you and no longer meant something to you and you were trying to recreate an old feeling so there is an element of your life and then you changed it to something that was more poignant like i you won't admit what the original object was but right. the cigarettes and the lottery ticket was a way of going like let me take this Thing from my life and make it more poignant and make it more awkward because 
<laughs> the lottery ticket contrasts with her wealthy house now and the cigarette where she has no lighter in the house. And it just, you've maximized the awkwardness. Yeah. And then he tries to smoke a cigarette a second later. And we realize that he's never in his life smoked a cigarette. Yes. Um, and that, that I, I, the, for, for me, I, I just, I, I think when you have these objects, yeah, you can do all of these things with them uh, that you, that just don't come out of like, oh, I'm going to ruminate about the passage of time and how we, we fall in and out of each other's lives. You, you, yeah. Like, like you say, you can do it all with an object. Okay. So I think we've gotten some good uh, discussion out of all this. I think that are we, we are we nearly done? We're not nearly done. Let's talk about Obi Wan. Let's talk about metaphor family being counterintuitive. Yes. So so then I wrote many follow up pieces to these original pieces over the years. I sent some to James today. One of them is about, and I talk about this in my new book, um, how Obi Wan Kenobi has a counterintuitive metaphor family in that he is an old religious spiritual hermit, but he talks like a general. And one of the first lines comes out of his mouth, could come out of the mouth of Patton. He says, quickly, son, they're on the move. When he gives Luke an emblem of his religion, he gives him, of all things, a laser sword. And he praises it by pointing out it has superior target accuracy to a laser gun. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight, not as clumsy or as random as a blaster. Later, his concern with weapons accuracy continues. He says, sand people always write single file to hide their numbers. And these blast points, too accurate, sorry, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. I mean, and that's then, a joke right there. Uh, what? Well, I mean, the the, uh, the joke about stormtroopers is they can't hit anybody. <laughs> well, that's true. But uh, but then, and then, you know, I just say, here's various other things he says that sounds like a general, but it also obeys your commands. In my experience, there's no such thing as luck. No, it's a short-range fighter. So he has he has this militaristic metaphor family. And that's much better than if he had been like new agey from the very beginning. Yes. And so, or if he had been, you know, like spiritual, if he had been, um, he was spiritual. He, he was spiritual. Both. No. Yeah. He, he, he talked about the forest in a very spiritual way, but then when they saw the Jedi sand crawler, it's almost as though like, okay, I did all this spiritual shit in like the second scene in which I was talking to Luke Skywalker. Now I have to pay for it by being very militaristic to show that I'm actually a person of the world. And then I have to put a cherry on it by cutting somebody's arms off in the cantina. Like or, you have, to, you have to pay for being uh kind of new agey in America. And, and, and the, the payment is you have to commit violence or sound like the kind of person who could commit violence. Well, and I think there's the person he wants to be. And then the person he really is. We've talked about characters in community having sort of two argument tactics and I think characters can have the argument tactic they want to have, appeal to higher spiritual values, and then they can reveal when push comes to shove, this is essentially a militaristic guy. And this is someone who fought in the Clone Wars and whose personality was sort of forged in the Clone Wars. I resist that, that the idea that, like, oh, when push comes to shove, he gives up his higher ideals because this is a person who literally just let himself die. Yeah, you know, true. later on in the movie. So I like, and I and also it, it kind of like works too much into your general like, oh, people are only looking after themselves, like point of view. I think instead of saying, and I think this is what what we might be able to come out of this, you say, oh, everybody should have a default argument tactic or a default personality trait. I think they should have two poles that they oscillate between, because. I think all of these people, like when we, we, we identify the two poles with Shirley, 
right? That, yeah. that she, but yeah. I think literally we cannot, higher pitch and lower pitch voice. Yeah. Right. And I think we can identify these polls with everybody, or at least with the good characters, the characters that work, that they have two poles that oscillate between. And I think that they go back and forth between them just in the same way that a battery gets its energy from the interchange between the positive and the negative. These characters, by having two things that you set up and watching them zing back and forth between the two of them, that's the interesting thing. One of the great things about Dale Cooper and Twin Peaks is that sometimes he's a truly out there kind of, you know, woo-woo uh, I'm interested in the occult and spiritual things kind of person. And sometimes he's a hard-nosed FBI guy. His first scene, the sheriff is trying to talk about the case and Dale Cooper's like, you've got to tell me what kind of trees you've got here. They're amazing. And he's like, uh, aren't we going to talk about the case? And then Dale Cooper whips out his tweezers and shoves his tweezers all the way up underneath the girl's fingernail and pulls out a typed letter from underneath the fingernail. And so, and suddenly the sheriff is like, oh, whoa, this guy is a super cop. Yeah, and not only that, it's it's kind of like and then like when they get a copy of Flesh World, which is like the magazine in which Teresa Banks and Laura Palmer advertised uh, their sexual favors in, like Dale Cooper gets this extremely kind of weirdly lascivious glint in his eye when he looks over at like let's take a look inside. I think they find it in like the uh in Laura Palmer's uh safe deposit box and he kind of opens it up. But he's got this almost like Jeffrey Beaumont from Blue Velvet look in his eyes at that moment in which like, I'm just into it for this reason. Yeah, I'm a voyeur. And that is a part of Dale. Like There there are so many interesting polls set up of Dale Cooper at the beginning that it kept going between that made him so interesting. But then as time went on, it had to settle into one thing. It just became, oh, well, he's just the perfect guy. You know, yeah. and so it became less interesting. But there was this kind of ping pong between perfect FBI agent, weird voyeur, and spiritual like shaman. And the fact that it was going between three things that was even better that is character. And not just saying, oh, this is a default argument tactic of this guy. This guy is an asshole. He'll always be an asshole. I don't think that's as helpful as saying, here's two things that he ping pongs between. Because even Pierce in community, has more than just one thing. You no, know I mean? I, I've, I've never been saying just one thing for anybody. I mean, I guess I've been saying that- Yes, you have. You said that about well, Pierce in particular. That's why I bring it up. I, I didn't say he's just one thing. He's a complex character. But I'm saying, that's why I'm saying default. I'm saying that in any, in any given scene or in every scene, that the characters can vary far away from this. And then it's, I mean, obviously Dan Rather, on most nights when Dan Rather was hosting the news- was not revealing that he was from Texas, that Dan Rather was maintaining a metaphor family. He was giving everybody a false impression about what his metaphor family was. You know, he was adopting the metaphor family of Midwest, which is what all newscasters are supposed to have. They're supposed to have a Midwestern accent. Not the accent. Midwest. Oh, yeah, the Midwest. Yeah, I get it. Okay, yeah. yeah. They're supposed to have a Midwestern accent. They're supposed to have sort of a Midwestern sensibility. And then suddenly when the shit hit the fan and everything went crazy that night. He suddenly was revealing all these Texasisms. And I think that the Dale Cooper has certain things he's trying to do and then certain things, defaults he's falling back on. Um, I think that Pierce, you know, I think that every character 
has. I think that it's good to know these things, not because you're like, okay, let's boil this character down to one thing and have them always do that thing. I think that it's good to know like, okay, when the shit hits the fan, when they accidentally reveal their true selves, then what comes out? But this is not necessarily what the character is trying to be. This is not necessarily what the character is. Like we are, we are more than our defaults. And I think your characters need to be more than their defaults, but it's good to know what those defaults are. Yeah. But I, I, and I, I think it's, this is a good idea, but I think I would like to complicate it by saying that the character comes out of the oscillation between different defaults. Sometimes yeah. somebody will say something, we'll cut to Shirley and we don't know if she's going to be the uptight Christian Shirley, or if she's going to be the scene there done that Shirley. And right. that's kind of part of the fun of Shirley. Yeah. Um, and same thing with Dale Cooper and frankly with, with Jeff Winger and all the characters that we love so much, we see them oscillating between two different selves and that's why we like them. And so I think this is the, we, we are doing this podcast. We're doing all this stuff for writers and you have already put out this advice on your blog and on your book. So this podcast is a gloss on that and like, okay, you've read all that. Like, what is the other thing? And I think this is the gloss we should put on it. Well, it's, I think it's not I, one thing. It, it's yeah, a, it's I mean, a, a oscillation I think, between poles. I think it's one thing to say like, oh, but everybody's more complex than that. There are exceptions. Not everybody can move all that one thing. But I think what we're really getting at here is what the character wants to be and what the character really is or what they are suppressing. And I think, you know, you see this very much with Jack Donaghy. He wants to be this corporate type A dominator. And his hidden metaphor family is Boston Irish Catholic. And he will find him, you know, he will find himself suddenly slipping into it uh, when he loses track of himself, when he loses control of himself. And I think with, I think with Shirley, she wants to be a prim, proper Christian lady who is somewhat judgmental of everything. And then she has this more down and dirty side to her personality that pops out. And I think that, yes, it's more complex than this. I'm not trying to hammer these people down again, but I think that this is a way to take what you're saying about having sort of two poles and detail that a little bit more, talking about how there is who they want to be and who they are suppressing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think when people read this or hear this, they think, oh, I'm going to figure out the default argument tactic and they're going to have somebody always be, you know, I don't know, the person who makes an anagram out of like what the <laughs> other person said and it just becomes really mechanical and shitty and i just want to resist that you know and and find a way to say look they because of their ineffable personality that we can never access like i guess all these characters have an an ineffable whatness about them that we can't access but it expresses itself through metaphor families and through uh, argument tactics and sometimes it goes one way and sometimes it goes in another way. And that's what makes them interesting and feel like they're alive and not like somebody who replies with an anagram at everything that, that is said to them, which would be super clever, but I, I don't think it would be as satisfying for a, a viewer. Well, I think one of the main things we've come up, we've come across in this episode is just, it's just so essential to have some bit of a real person in every character you write yes. and to have like, okay, I'm creating this new character of Jeff Winger, but... 
I'm going to name him Jeff to remind me that there is a real character named Jeff who he's going to have elements of, or I'm going to name this character Abed to remind me there is a real character uh, who is Abed. And certainly Danny McBride, when he was writing the Foot Fist Way, he was like, okay, you know, there were these real Southern Fried Taekwondo instructors that I am channeling the voice of, but I'm also channeling Ricky Gervais. I'm also going like, okay, this is where we started the whole episode with, I'm going to combine my coworker with Betty White. And I am going to create a character that way. And, and of course, I mean, I talk about at one Hell, point, Luke's name is like, like Lucas. Yes. Luke, George <laughs> Lucas becomes Luke. It is very true. And, but you can also split yourself into multiple characters and every character you write is going to be based on yourself to a certain extent. And every character you write probably should have a little bit of somebody, you know, a little bit of yourself and a little bit of a fictional character that you love. Yeah. And it not, and I, I feel that when people do this, they shouldn't even do it in the sense of like, oh, this will make it a better character. I think you should approach it as like, I'm going to sacrifice some intimate detail of my life oh, in yeah. a cult way to uh, to give uh, like supernatural power to this story. It gives a power that goes beyond just the words that are on the page. It kind of like... Uh, uh, invigorates everything that you do about it because you know that you put this thing about yourself into it that the giant who like has a heart that's outside of himself that that old fairy tale you know um you, you took the heart your own heart you put it outside of yourself and now it's very vulnerable and now you go around being a giant you know destroying cities and things like that but you always know that your heart is in a locked box back in your castle and anybody could get it at any time there's that, a great story uh there's a great story where they were writing the fourth season of The Sopranos and they were like, oh, we need some way to really humanize this character before we kill him off. You know, we're going to kill him off, but we want that to feel painful. So this is the um, the Ralph Cinderella character uh, played by uh, Joey Panolano. And they were like, "Like, what, what scene can we quickly add to make us care about this character more before we kill him off? And then one of the one of the writers in the writer's room was like, well, okay, here's a good example. Not this, because I'm saving this one for my novel, but something like this, where at one point when we were kids, we were like, we got an archery set and we're like, okay, let's have one person shoot arrows straight up in the air and the other person run around with the target trying to catch the arrow. And then of course the arrow goes straight into the kid's chest and he almost dies. And it's like, so we could have that happen to Ralph Cedro's son, but not that, because I'm saving that for my novel. And then he looked around the writer's room and everybody was glaring at him. And the, <laughs> the, the two people running the writer's room who told me this story. Said, I remember this from your blog, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were like, excuse me, we're paying you how much? And you're saving your best material for your novel? And so sure enough, in the Sopranos episode, they're shooting arrows up into the air and Ralph Sidorelli's son is running around trying to catch them and almost and goes to the hospital and almost dies because he gets an arrow in him. But uh, yeah, you have to do that. And it's funny, I have a list of things from my life that I was saving for something fictional. And then I realized I needed to put more of myself in my new book. And so I added a final chapter in my new book, which was like talking about how you have to pull from your own life and giving examples of, for instance, here's me pulling from my own life. But these were things that, again, I was saving them for my novel. And then I realized I needed to go ahead and sacrifice them for my second nonfiction book. And, uh, now and I feel you should put over. those at the beginning because they're really good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, they're still at the end as of now. But um, we're, we're almost done with this thing. Cool. 
I have never taken one of your notes, James, and I never will. <laughs> why Why do you have me read your shit at all? No, that's not kidding. I, I can read my stuff and you just don't finish it. I took a lot of your notes, James. That one was, uh, that one I did not take. Um, okay, James, I think we've had a good episode here. I think we have complicated and made more complex some of the ideas that I've been bouncing around for the last 10 years. And I think it's great. I think it's, I think we've, we've had a very good discussion. Is there anything else you want to add before we head out? No. <laughs> Whoa. What was that? <laughs> that was, <laughs> that, that terrified me. Okay. So. I I good... scare you. <laughs> what are you doing there? Are you doing some sort of voice modulator? I'm putting my mouth on the microphone. <laughs> Have you ever heard Pat Oswalt's routine about listening to the Alvin and the Chipmunks record at slow speed? Yes. yes <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my all-time favorite comedy routines. Okay, everybody. I will. We will see everybody uh, sometime soon for our next episode. We did it. We did it. Okay. All right. Uh, see you soon, everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.